Welcome to The Beauty of Horror, a podcast dedicated to exploring the unsettling beauty found within our favorite genre. Each episode, I would usually sit down with a different guest to discuss a horror film they find particularly beautiful and why. However, with the changing of the seasons comes a shift in our focus. For the next few months, we will be diving into the goop, the gloop, the rancid, and all things gross while taking an uncomfortably close look at the aesthetics of disgust. We're about week three into this adventure, and it's getting grosser and grosser by the episode. My guests have done a great job of creating a wonderful gauntlet for me. I'm your host, Chandler Bullock, and my guest today on this masochistic journey is a horror writer and critic with bylines at Moving Pictures Film Club. She's also the administrative assistant of and writer for Ghouls Magazine. Beautiful greetings to Ariel Powers Schaub. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. I was really excited when you uh, gave me a little message that you had some interest in it. And uh, yeah, I was like, oh, there's a familiar face and name and I would love to talk to this person. So welcome, welcome aboard. Thank you. Now, before we begin our discussion and get too deep into things, I do like to kick each episode off with a quote if I had time to get one. And I did. Everybody, I had time to get one this time. Uh, So... I will present the quote I feel was fitting for today's discussion. It is as follows. Much of the time when we experience deep disgust, its cause is the spectacle of the revolting event, not our personal experience of it. We witness the disgusting thing happening to someone else, real or fictional, but it is not happening to us. Usually there is some distance between ourselves and the object of our deep disgust. This space between subject and object creates room for two elements essentially connected with our experience of deep disgust, imagination, and fear. I will mention who said this and in what context a little bit later, if I remember, (laughs) because we all know how that goes if I get too caught up in the discussion. But still, I wanted to have this already established. But first, Ariel, welcome aboard. And... As I ask with every newcomer, how did you get into horror as a fan? And also, you are now kind of starting off a career as a writer and and getting involved in this industry that we have of journalism and and discourse and analysis. So it's a two-part question. How did it start for you in general, and how did it become what it is now? Yeah. Well... You know, I always feel like I should have a better answer to how did it start. I love hearing other people's stories about this. And mine is just like, I don't remember a time when I was not into horror. Hmm. It just sort of feels like it's always been there. I remember scary stories like ghost stories being read in my home. We've always been a big Halloween family that I grew up in. I have a brother who's five years older than me who was always watching scary stuff with his friends. And if I would be quiet, he would let me hang around and like watch stuff with them. I just, it it feels like it's just always been an interest of mine. My parents had a lot of Stephen King books in the house and I was always reading Goosebumps. So 
I don't have a moment where I was like, and now I became a horror fan. It's just sort of like <laughs> I was maybe born one. There's probably a moment that exists that I just don't remember. Not fair, but so you know, were you already absorbing a lot of media before you, like, you know, earlier on then, or was the media around you just like, because you said you had Stephen King books in the house, mm -hmm, but do mm -hmm. your parents also like horror in general? Yeah, um, it was definitely a welcome genre in my house. I mean, I think I'm the biggest horror fan in my family, but I think like, <laughs> that's probably true for uh, a lot of uh, your guests and listeners. Um, but there was a, a video rental place a couple blocks from our house and a lot of like older movies were free. And so oh. whatever happened to baby Jane, we watched that one a lot and hush, hush, sweet Charlotte, you know, like older psychological creepy horror movies i remember watching those frequently so it definitely was was a welcome genre growing up and so i just feel like it's always been there a lot of x files a lot of mm -hmm. are you afraid of the dark mm. yeah cool and so on the topic of now that we're we're beyond the goosebumps nest not beyond <laughs> but like you, you've 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 upgraded over the yeah years. we've built on it <laughs> yeah you've built upon it and with mm -hmm. your foundations of the goosebumps days mm -hmm, and, and mm -hmm. today what what uh what kind of drives you now and how did you start getting involved in you know telling people about it yeah well it's so I, i've gotten really lucky i guess even though horror was always a part of my life it always really felt like such a personal thing like other than a couple friends I had who liked to watch and talk about horror with me, most of my friends in my life have not felt that way, or at least not been as into it as I am, which is probably a relatable experience for a lot of us like hardcore horror fans. So it always just felt something like I take my stack of weird movies, I go hide in the basement like a goblin, and I have my personal horror experiences. So... I didn't really realize that it was something I could be a community member of until I feel like I was late to the party. And I just happened to learn about Ghoul's Magazine when it was launching. And that coincided with a time where um, throughout the pandemic, especially uh, being stuck at home a lot, I started writing about horror just for myself just as something to do, something to occupy my mind, sort of as a way to replace some of the socialization that I wasn't getting to do as much. And so I was like, well, you know, I've followed Zoe, you know, Zobo with a shotgun for a while, and I really respect her writing and a lot of the other writers I knew of them too. And so I was like, well, let me give it a try and see if they like what I have to say. And so I think it was like, you know, a good time in my life. And then it, Ghouls happened to be starting and I happened to have some writing samples. So that's what I mean when I say I think I got really lucky. And I've just been I, like, it's just been a great year ever since then. And I've got to meet a lot of really great people such as yourself in the horror community online and like meet some other podcasters and other writers. And so now I'm just like, wow, could I have been having this communal experience this whole time? Right. <laughs> you know, the horror community can be really awesome. 
Oh, it really, really can. I mean, just like with any community, there's always going to be ups and downs and that familial kind of infighting and stuff. Sure. It's also a huge community. So you start to discover, oh, there are people who just think fundamentally differently than me. Yep. Um, But apart from that, you know, that love of the genre for whatever reasons, we all have had that feeling of, okay, I guess I'm uh, the weirdo, the one who's taken this a little too far. (laughs) And we're all taking it too far. And that's kind of cool. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Um, really cool to hear that you got into this just through the inception of Ghouls Magazine. So yeah, really yes. good timing. I don't know if I would say pure luck, you know. Of course, there's <laughs> luck involved and that the opportunity arose. Since, mm-hmm. Of course, with Ghouls came an opportunity for writers who had never cut their teeth or who were just starting out. Exactly. It, it's not like you're going to go up to a Fangoria and be like, hey, can I, <laughs> can I do this thing that, you know, I don't even know what I'm doing, but I want to try. Not yet. Still haven't pitched to Fangoria. Maybe one day. Maybe one day. I haven't even done it yet either, and I'm really nervous about it. When I when I finally get that piece where I'm like, I want you to take it. Do it. <laughs> It'll happen one day. It'll happen. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But super cool. And, you know, keep in mind, though, talent also enters into that and passion and your voice. So, you know, Zoe, as kind as of a woman she is, she's also very critical. So uh, kudos to you. That means that oh, you've definitely you know grabbed something there and grabbed her attention which is it's not the easiest thing to do let's put it that way (laughs) well thank you (laughs) uh very cool and so i think it's also a great story for people who are listening who are indeed a part of a community let's say put it that way since there are multiple horror communities Mm -hmm. and listening or hearing and, and and seeing other people do this work and i have a lot of guests who have been maybe more established in since like 10, 20 years. I've had a few who've had like two years or so. Mm-hmm. I myself have only been doing the podcast since I think July of 2021. And then before then, I only got into writing in this whole community in 2020. Just like yourself, it was mm. the pandemic hit. I actually got COVID really early on, like before oh, they gosh. even knew how to tell if you had COVID. It was just, I was reading the symptoms. I'm like, oh, I'm, I've never had this before. So yeah. And I needed to do something to stay sane. And I couldn't talk. I couldn't really do much more than like lie in bed and look at a screen. So mm-hmm. I got to tweeting. And then I guess I didn't use Twitter either uh, up until that point, really. And then I just started writing. So I just think it's so cool to have more of those stories, especially for somebody who's pretty new to it all. And you're already in Google's Magazine. And it just shows that if you really feel it and you present that to people and you have something to show – you can get those steps that you need to get a platform. So really yeah. happy to hear that that worked out for you. Yeah, thank you. And I would say, yeah, to, to anybody listening who is like me and just kept it all inside for so long, like if you want to write or you want to do something, like get try at least, yeah, you know, just, just try it. and see what happens. Because I just, I was like, well, I'll just try and see what happens. And if I get a no, then I'm not any worse off than I am today. And so, yeah, easy so, for me to say now, but I still think it's true. <laughs> I mean, a no always hurts. It sucks. But yeah, you know, of course, you still don't have, you don't lose anything other than a little bit of your ego. And, yep. Uh, it's good to lose every now and then. I was so. going to say, yeah, like, it's okay to take some hits to your pride. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is for me, anyway. And I think, it, yeah, that applies to most people. <laughs> I think a lot of people are afraid of taking hits to their pride. Mm-hmm. And then they just shelter it so much that they don't do things, basically. 
It's either yeah. that you don't do things or you just fight people all the time. <laughs> I think it's really good that you're just like, yeah, I'm just going to, you know, you got to stick your neck out every, every now and then and see if somebody punches you in the face, basically. Yeah, yes. <laughs> Better to oh. be lucky than good. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. So I got to ask then, uh, what is your main focus then with your writing? If, if you could put maybe a small description on what your kind of your voice is for anybody who hasn't perused ghouls just yet and found your writing. Yeah, uh, thank you. That's an awesome question. Um, so just in the last year, as I've been writing, I, I was trying a variety of different things to kind of find that out for myself. Like, what is my voice? What do I want to say? And so I have reviews and I have analyses and I have some personal pieces. And what I've found that I really like doing um, I really like analysis. I would rather write deep dive editorials than necessarily reviews. And I really like putting films in their historical and cultural context of when they came about. So I like to write retrospectives, like, you know, I'll look okay. at this movie 20 years later. and What did it mean at the time and what does it mean now? That's something that's really important to me. And Probably, if you follow me on Twitter, you already know this, but I'm a big fan of the Blair Witch Project, and I'm a big fan of the Saw franchise. So any writing I can do about those things, I want to try and get that in wherever I can. But yeah, I would say like analysis and historical context of horror. I love that idea that you're mentioning with the recontextualization of like how it was then and how it is perceived now. I think that's something that more discourse could use in the conversation just to show for those who are maybe more orientated towards just how it was and kind of hold on to that over the years mm -hmm. it can be hard to really stomach people's opinions on something now and i think it's really cool if somebody like yourself is doing work to not only just say this is what i've noticed but you know you're contextualizing it in a way to show like this is why we kind of see it a little differently now not to say that we can't see the context from what it was you're proving mm -hmm. that point by doing both at the same time that you can you can walk that line and still give it credit for its day but know that a legacy doesn't necessarily hold true to its current reality basically so very interesting absolutely and i think it's hard when you're in the middle of whatever it is you're in the middle of, it's hard to see its place in history sometimes. So, you know, how a movie is perceived when it comes out in the year 2005, if we look back and we go, oh, this is what was going on at that time, it's easier to see its place in history now that we're removed from it. So I like looking backwards. Hmm. Well, we're definitely going to be doing that today. <laughs> yes. In fact, this is a film that I I would almost call timeless, but maybe we haven't had enough time away from it yet. But it, it is amazing that it's almost 20 years old. Yeah. And it doesn't feel like it to me. Um, so what movie will we be discussing today? We will be discussing Rob Zombie's House of a Thousand Corpses from 2003. Oh, yes. The one mm -hmm. that started it all. Love him. <laughs> yes. Hate him. Only care about the music. Doesn't really matter. All of your emotions can be found in this movie. Basically. Yep. 100% true. <laughs> yes. Every bit of Rob Zombie's filmography is embedded into the very first flick he ever made. Yep. Uh, now, 
before we get into it, anybody who hasn't seen it, for whatever reason, I think, do yourself a favor and watch it. But I'm going to read out a brief synopsis on IMDb. I like to see if it can kind of, you know, work with what we would say the <laughs> film actually has going on in it. And of course, most of these movies are way too complex to give an IMDb synopsis, but it's an interesting little challenge. So IMDb says it's about two young couples traveling across the backwoods of Texas, searching for urban legends of murder, end up as prisoners of a bizarre and sadistic backwater family of serial killers. Gotta say, one of the closest ones, if you're going to put it succinctly, that I've seen IMDb do. Yeah, that was pretty good. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they're missing some of the core of what makes this movie it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but how could you do that in That's exactly what it is. I think this movie is more about the experience of watching it, the sensory experience, than it is the plot. Yeah, for sure. The plot's really just Rob Zombie going, what if I made the Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Hmm. That is exactly right. <laughs> Texas Chainsaw Carney edition, basically, yep. is, is what it is. So when we were discussing the different categories that I was going over, you know, beauty had already kind of filled up when we first uh, started talking and you jumped into disgust and you had house of a thousand corpses ready to go. It seemed. Mm -hmm. So I'm very curious what made you a want to pick this category and B pick this film for this category. Yeah. Um, gosh, disgust can be really fun. <laughs> um, <laughs> I wanted to pick Disgust because I do think that I like a lot of movies that would be considered disgusting, and probably a lot of your guests do. But I just, I knew I was going to find something in that category that I could really, you know, dissect, pun intended, and just like dive into and get into the goop and, and talk about. And I, it, that feels like home to me. More so than um, some of the other categories, I was like, ooh, I don't know if I'm qualified to talk about that, but I'm definitely qualified <laughs> to talk about disgust. Um, and the reason I wanted to pick this film in particular is not just because it is a disgusting movie, although it is, I'm sure there are going to be uh, movies in this season that are more disgusting than House of a Thousand Corpses, but... Okay. This is a movie about disgust. Hmm. It's about not only the disgust of the two couples looking in on the Firefly family and feeling disgust at what they see. It is Rob Zombie confronting the audience and using this vehicle as or this film as a conduit, a vehicle to talk to the audience and say, I, you know, I'm confronting you with this. You are implicated in this and we have to explore our own disgust as we watch this movie mm -hmm. so i thought it would be a good one to to look at not only from a perspective of what's happening in the movie but how you experience it as a viewer i love that yeah in fact i think this is the second film that has been brought up in a way of not just the physicality of it all but mm -hmm. it has a lot to do with the messaging of like is this you like it, this, this mm -hmm. disdain that we can have for otherness for one just as people yes who just don't seem to fit our mold and uh you know if anybody's going to be talking about breaking a mold in uh at least 
the context of like Texas and stuff. Definitely going to be Rob Zombie, I, I imagine, uh, or at least in the in the context of corpses. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. So yeah, I, I can see where you're going with that, and it's going to be very interesting to get into that because I will say one of the most striking features for me in this film was how unlikable the protagonists are. This mm -hmm. is one of those films that does what I think a lot of slashers nowadays are failing at. A lot of times we're getting movies that will have some pretty decent protagonists in them. And then we'll still get like amazing kills as if we're supposed to be rooting for the villain. When I'm like, you can only do that if they are reprehensible and represent a, you know, a trope that you're kind of trying to destroy on screen basically mm -hmm. or the villain has to be terrifying that, that's pretty much what you're left with and i, I kind of appreciate how rob zombie's like everybody sucks just, <laughs> people people suck is basically the gist of the movie that that is yeah that there's there's no one i mean you can kind of root for um denise's dad as he's looking for her but there's not even a lot of screen time to do so. No, no, yeah. exactly. He doesn't really get too much to do with that. And uh, I, I liked that Zombie has that kind of nihilistic approach there of, uh, yeah, yeah, no, he's not here enough to be a protagonist. But I, mm -hmm. yeah, you felt bad for him for a moment, didn't you? Okay, well, it made mm -hmm. this scene really hit, <laughs> basically. Basically, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so let's see. What would be a good starting off point for us? You know, we're going to be discussing, of course that more kind of social aspects because it's definitely there you have these two couples who kind of hate each other but also hate their partners as well it seems mm -hmm. and i don't see any joy apart from within the firefly uh firefly family they seem to be the only joyful figures that we get in the film which makes sense um but uh we also have the aesthetics to discuss as well. Mm -hmm. And it's funny that you, you brought it up for this category when you did. I was like, oh, you know what? This could fit just like all four of the ones <laughs> I'm going to go over this season. So it's quite interesting because for me, I find it a very beautiful film as well. It's my yes. favorite zombie movie. Same. It's, it's just so colorful and vibrant. and it, I love the aesthetic. Mm -hmm. It, mm -hmm. it does. It, it's a beautiful movie to look at. Yes. But it's also a beautiful movie to listen to. Okay. Um, I think it's, it's the only film I can think of where you could mute the TV and just watch the visuals and have an awesome sensory experience. Or <laughs> you could close your eyes and just listen to it and have an awesome sensory experience. Obviously, it's better if you can do both. Yeah. But because that's how, what it, how it was designed to be taken in. But... The visuals and the sound stand on their own so much. I And it's not, it shouldn't be surprising, right? That Rob Zombie, he's directed a lot of music videos. And so like mm -hmm. that he would know how to make something sound good and be visually appealing. That doesn't surprise me. Um, although I'm not a huge fan of most of his feature films, but he really nailed it in House of a Thousand Corpses. He did take that sentiment that he has with the music videos mm -hmm. and applied it to a larger scale and a lot of people have some troubles with that i think it's you know mm -hmm. if you're walk you're, you're going into a movie and you really want to get escapist plot oriented entertainment uh, yeah you're not getting that 
in this Rob Zombie movie. There are some Rob Zombie movies where you, you know, it is just about him telling you a quick story. But for mm-hmm. the most part, this is meant to make you feel something. And it is not a very nice feeling. So, <laughs> yeah. And it's kind of interesting to think about that, too, considering, like, I would say maybe Lords of Salem is the only one in his whole filmography that seems to take on that more, like, mature approach to that of like I really want you to think and feel for this movie yeah but this one it doesn't seem like it's doing that but I see it in the the way it's crafted mm-hmm. that's the mindset behind it it's just with that rockabilly kind of attitude behind it too yes and I think it's really like that feeling it's supposed to give you and the things that you're meant to think about are really aided by some of the stuff that seems like a non sequitur, like mm. Captain Spaulding's, um, like the opening where we learn about his establishment and there's a robbery and there's kind of this irrelevant conversation he has with one of his customers and some of the cutaways to interviews that are meant to feel like the Manson tapes mm. um, that aren't really necessarily connected to anything that's happening in the plot but it's all put together in such a way to deliver this feeling to you that i think if you removed some of those things that aren't as plot relevant the movie wouldn't work as well you wouldn't get that feeling from it that you do when it's all put together the way that it is yeah i know that like i do love all of these vignettes and Mm -hmm. little asides because i love the tone of them and they're mm-hmm. creepy. They are disturbing, but they become doubly so when you have the context of this family in this house, and you have that scene with Spalding. You know, maybe this is a great scene to start with, actually. You have the robbers that come into the chicken shack, mm-hmm. and that whole scene just seems like, why was this not deleted <laughs> when you're first watching it? Because it just kind of interrupts right. any flow of the film. And it's just there to kind of establish that Captain Spaulding doesn't take bullshit mm-hmm. and he he will kill you. And I love that it creates this ambiguity throughout the entire film of, is he a murderer mm-hmm. or does he just not take bullshit? And yep. Very, I mean, we obviously get the answers to that later in the film, but, and more so in The Devil's Rejects, but still. Right. Um. It's. I think the reason it all works together so well is because of world building. I, you don't see mm. it a lot in films, right? Normally you want to keep the world kind of two-dimensional, just enough to understand the plot. But zombies more like, the, the world is very disgusting. It's a horrible place. This mm-hmm. is a horrible world that he's put on screen. And if you can relate to the world that you're in, eh, you, you kind of get it then. Yes, and a lot of that opening with Captain Spaulding really sets up some of the, like, I want to say disgusting threads that carry through. Mm -hmm. He's serving food and talking about food while they're also, he's talking about cleaning a toilet and unclogging a toilet, and then they have to mop up blood, and, you know, they're talking, they're they're in the middle of all these, um, like taxidermied animals <laughs> yeah. and you know oddities and things and so it's it's really unsettling you're you're like these things shouldn't go together these should all be separate conversations like 
I wouldn't feel comfortable buying food from <laughs> Captain Spaulding's. Just personally, it doesn't seem like a place that food should come from. And throughout the film, there's a lot more moments like that. And I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but like when they sit down to dinner at the Firefly family's house, there's a lot of disgusting things happening with food there. And it just sort of makes me feel gross in a really particular way that's different than gore or splatter. It's like, mm -hmm. no, what are you doing with food? Food is supposed to be untouchable. You're not supposed to make food gross, but he does. He really does. And especially with the way people eat as well. They don't seem to have any respect for their food. Right. And that ties into their, you know, more murderous, just disrespectful nature in general as well. As you're saying, like, not only do we see murders and stuff taking place in the same space where food is being served mm -hmm. to the public, you also get scenes where, it, you know, just discussing sex and mm -hmm. bodily functions and stuff at the dinner table as if it's just fun banter about how your day went. It, it's an interesting take there. And I think that's part of the thing that people respond so heavily to Rob Zombie's dialogue mm -hmm. is that I can see some of the offense if we're talking about just some of the language use, just if, if you just kind of get tired of it, you know? Mm -hmm. But I do feel, especially in this movie, more so than a lot of the others, it's designed to create that knee-jerk kind of wincing response to it because you're like, ah, why you got to talk like that? Ah, why you got to behave this way? And he's really just poking us constantly <laughs> in our disgust for. <laughs> yes. Uh, and I would even go as far as you were saying, there are movies that we're going to, to discuss uh, on this uh, season that will be more disgusting. And you are right, mm -hmm. for sure. On a visual mm -hmm. level, yes. And that's the interesting thing, right? I think this movie is disgusting in so many more ways than just visuals. And honestly, probably sh more strongly in the other ways than in the visuals. Yes. Um, I think about the way, like the torture that we see and the tableaus that we see of the people that the Firefly family have abducted and the way the camera just holds on them. Mm -hmm. And that is really bold and disgusting because... I'm thinking of a scene where there are two cheerleaders facing each other on a bed and one of them yeah. is dead and it's not over the top gory dead. She just looks like a corpse and that's a really unsettling feeling because you might expect in a movie like this for there to be like lots of over the top gore for her. But there isn't. And so it gives you this like uncanny feeling too, where you're like, oh, this is almost too real what I'm looking at and I feel disgusted by it. Mm -hmm. And there's a scene where baby's picking some music for while they, they torture one of the, um, one of their victims. And she's just like dancing around and laughing and listening to brick house while they're cutting up somebody's face. And it's just like, that's disgusting on like a human level, even if visually the gore isn't disgusting us. Exactly. That, and you also usually have someone 
responding to it in these scenes as well who can go like uh like like you said you have the cheerleader crying on the bed and then next to her is her friend who's just she's not even looking at her like my friend is dead she's really just like i'm lying on the bed with a decomposing corpse yep and i want to get out of here yep so that that i think is what makes it even stronger is that it's like a prop but this prop just you can feel the humidity in that room oh yeah you can almost smell it from the way yep they filmed the whole thing and then you have otis who's just going waxing philosophical the whole time acting like there's nothing going on and then he even starts yelling at her like what you crying for are you a little upset yeah yeah oh otis so Mm -hmm. um have we started it the otis of it all (laughs) we could let's go for it Something I noticed yesterday that I haven't watched this movie in a while. And so I was really watching it yesterday, trying to make sure I saw every detail. And there's one scene where he's wearing a Confederate flag hat. Yes. And that's disgusting in a very real world way to me. And... I wonder, you know, this was filmed in the year 2000... And it came out in 2003 because it sat on the shelf for a while trying to get its rating down. Mm-hmm. And thankfully, the attitude towards the Confederate flag in the United States has people have gotten have come to understand what it means. And it's less acceptable than it used to be. But of course, there are still people who will use the flag and display it for whatever reasons they may or may not say. So for me to see that just as like a casual prop in a movie gave me a feeling of disgust that I wasn't expecting. I was like, okay, I'm going to talk about the disgust in this movie. And then I was like, oh, there's something that's a little too real right now. It's an interesting one too. I've always been a bit taken aback by that particular hat. I grew Mm -hmm. up in the South. So the Confederate flag is an image that I've seen way too much of. I grew up in Mississippi. To be exact, so it was on the oh. flag for a very, very long time. Yeah. You know, till recently, basically. And so it's just a flag that I've never appreciated for a multitude of reasons. Of course, the, you know, reasons that everybody should <laughs> be upset about. You know, it is a representation right. of uh, white supremacy and racism. Right. Then there's also just the fact that just a lot of the people that I knew who wanted to have, oh, but it's our heritage and stuff, were still just kind of shitty people who were, you know, being abusive and just trying to find an excuse to use this really problematic image and just hang it wherever they wanted to. Mm-hmm. So I could tell even at the time, like it felt to me like that was one of the things that Zombie put into it to poke at people because he knew that mm-hmm. there's a subset of people, especially in 2003, I'd, I'd more say it was a subset of us, who were really not okay with it. At the same time, it's like, Otis is supposed to be a pure, like, nihilistic anarchist, and yet he has this political flag on. Mm-hmm. And it's always felt so strange to me. It says so much about the character, because I suddenly read him more human than I normally would. And it was because of that hat. Yeah, that's true. It does, instead of him just being like a cartoon monster, it pulls him into reality. And the way it clashes with 
I mean, I think that's a very real clash. Like someone might say they stand for one thing and then their behaviors show you that they stand for something else. And that's what's happening there. He's like, he wears another shirt that has the American flag on it that says burn this flag. And so he's got that and then he's got his Confederate flag hat and then he's supposed to be this anarchist nihilist, like you said. And it's just like, what are you really about, buddy? What's going on with you? Um, yeah, that does make him seem more real. And now, granted, I do think that what Zombie's really doing in pretty much all of his attire, everything, is just this is shit he's picked up from people as he's killed them. And if it fits, he keeps it. Basically. Probably true. Yeah. Probably true. And then the one shirt that he probably cared about was the burn this flag one because mm -hmm. I, I have a feeling he cares about that just enough. But, <laughs> yeah. You know, like baby, she goes out and buys the thing she wants and steals whatever she wants from the people that they kill if it's nice mm -hmm. enough. But I think that Otis is just like, well, this underwear doesn't work anymore, so yours will do. They don't fall off. You know, that kind of <laughs> It's guy. probably true. Which is disgusting in its own right. Yeah. Because um, you know he doesn't wash anything either. Oh, right? God. He sure doesn't look like he does. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm assuming that the hat is either a just thing that he grabbed off of somebody because he wanted to have a hat. You know, it's like a, a, mem a memento of that person. Or he could possibly be doing it for the exact same reasons that zombie put it on him in the first place. And that's yeah. to piss off whoever he's with. He that's true. That's piss him off. Otherwise he is indeed a bit of a hypocritical figure, which is good. I do mm -hmm. find that interesting if he is fallible that way, but nothing about him in the other films say otherwise, you know, they don't really have, there's no evidence of this other than this mm -hmm. one image. And I just, that's what made it so conflicting to me on like, are you doing it just to make him look even more like a piece of shit? <laughs> or <laughs> is it to really say something about the type of person we're talking about? You already mentioned that the tapes that we see, these these little vignettes, are very Manson-esque. So I think it's pretty easy to criticize the Manson family and their whole belief system. Right. And I'm pretty sure Rob Zombie was definitely making a statement on that too like it's like hey they're pretty rock and roll but rock and roll is not rock and roll without being kind of chill basically <laughs> <laughs> yeah i um i realized yesterday that the blu-ray i have has his commentary and i've never watched it before so i was like oh i need to do that yeah. one of these days and see what he has to say about some of this stuff because it would be interesting to hear you know what was intentional and what was just kind of put together because it's kind of like you said at the beginning this movie feels like it has all of rob zombie in it and it kind of feels to me like maybe he was worried he wasn't going to get to make another movie so he threw in everything mm -hmm. he might possibly want to do um yes. which ended up working out really well but that could also be why there's some disparate things that don't feel as connected yeah, it could be. Maybe there are things that he intended to do and just kind of started things and then <laughs> just couldn't, mm -hmm. you know, complete them. And, of course, I mean, I do feel the need to address just for anybody listening that, of course, there has been the recent controversy surrounding uh, his wife, Sherry Moon. Yes. Who, who you know, supported the, the truck uh, kind of – it's hard to even call it protests, like whinging and moaning in Canada. And – it's like it was we still don't know how much of it is 
them supporting the type of person or them more being blissfully ignorant from a celebrity you know perspective of trying to empower people to fight the system mm-hmm. and the confederate flag was used a lot in this situation so it's just kind of like yeah you know like is this confederate flag here because rob zombie likes the confederate flag or is it because the weird thing about that too is like but it's on otis Who right he's a shit <laughs> And you're meant to think that. You're not meant to be like, yay, Otis. <laughs> no. I think in, in the future films, maybe you're meant to root for the Firefly family a little bit more. But in House of a Thousand Corpses, I don't think you are. No. They're meant yeah. to be the most interesting thing in the film. I can see mm-hmm. where Zombies put himself in certain aspects of it. Yeah. yeah. Maybe he's even referencing some of his like younger ideologies and stuff. I know that if I were to write a version of myself that would, like when I was young. Yeah. I think I'd make a great villain just from <laughs> like, I was not a very nice guy and definitely just had a, what, what about us kind of attitude about things. Okay. And it's just, you either grow out of it or you don't. Uh, and it's, you know, it can be really hard to, to get out of a, a really shitty attitude. And I, I can see the need sometimes creatively to reflect on that, but yeah, I don't know. I haven't really heard any commentary on it either. So I'm very curious to his thoughts. Yeah, I don't know either. I mean, I can only guess. Yeah. The one thing I, I do feel it was really intentional with Otis when there's a scene where um, Denise's father and the police are looking for them. They're looking for Denise and Mary and Bill and, and Jerry. Um, and they're kind of following this trail of these missing cheerleaders and, and they find an abandoned car and they open up the trunk and one of the cheerleaders bodies in there and she's naked and trick-or-treat has been carved into her side mm-hmm. and it's a really disturbing shot it's drawn out you know it's horrible like what are they gonna find and that shot cuts back and forth between looking at the young lady in the trunk and Otis yelling at the camera, I hope you like what you see. Mm-hmm. And this is one of those moments where I think Rob Zombie was like, audience, you need to confront yourself because of course we do like what we see. I, I love this movie. And it's like, why do I like what I see? This is a disgusting, horrifying shot, but that's what I came here for. Mm-hmm. And so like that use of Otis really works for me in that moment where he's kind of breaking the fourth wall to the audience and going, why are you looking at this? And that moment really makes me reflect on the disgust and my own enjoyment of the disgust in this film. Well, I think you have given me a very good segue into quickly discussing that quote that I brought in since it is about our distance from deep disgust. And so to kind of talk about what that is from that is from an article called disgust and moral taboos by john kekas i think is how you pronounce this i found this on jstor which uh for for those who may not know uh that it's just uh it's a resource an electronic resource for scholars and, and academics who have a subscription and i'm still studying so my university has access to it and so that's where i get all my stuff from basically jstor and other resources and you know they show you different journals and the articles in those journals you can just search for things and looking through for disgust i found this quote and if i go back to it what they're saying is 
there's specifically talking about deep disgust here. So they're trying to make a distinction between just disgust from that more biological, instinctual place. That's where most, I'd say, academic and philosophical conversations are going to start is like, what is it? And it's really us just being like, this is toxic, literally, to our body, and you need to not be around it. You know, that's mm-hmm. just it's just a survival instinct. And therefore, then we can look at how does the body respond, which, of course, leads us to understanding how similar our bodies seem to be responding to emotional situations and social situations. And it's interesting how that is a form of disgust, even though there's no harm coming to you on that toxicity level unless we're talking about socially toxic. I guess that's where the term even comes from. It's like this is stuff that really poisons the mind and the heart and the soul. Mm-hmm. And so when deep disgust is being discussed here, um, it's funny how disgust and disgust. They're uh, right. <laughs> it's so funny. But he's getting at the fact that when we are deeply disgusted, that whole like you can't even <laughs> about it, it's only because you were able to distance yourself because it's happening to somebody else. It's really that feeling that we have when we witness injustices, when we witness things like House of a Thousand Corpses, any movies like this, the torture, things like that. And uh, I like that you're bringing up Otis's, I hope you like what you see. I thought that was one of the most impactful parts of the film because Zombie here, and you know Bill Mosley doing a wonderful job doing this as well, is taking that distance away from you and looking mm-hmm. straight at you and being like, you should be ashamed of yourself. Yes. And it's so good because at the same time, it's like, dude, you're the one who made the movie. <laughs> right. <laughs> How dare you get to preach to me? And he's like, who's going to preach? <laughs> he has this wonderful attitude of like, I never said any of this was wrong, but if you think it's wrong, why are you watching the movie? Yep. He says, I hope, I lo- I hope you like what you see. And so if you're like, well, no, I don't. Okay, why are you watching this movie? But if yes, I do, well, then what's wrong with you? Like, it's just a really wonderful way to put us in our in our place. Yeah, you must be a freak then. I'm a freak. Mm-hmm. It takes one to know one. It's basically. What <laughs> basically, yes. So, like, I, I do recall, now I could be wrong, so anybody who is more of a film, like, I guess, I, I'm with you, I'm more of an analyst, I'm, you know, a philosopher. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not too much in film, uh, production basically let's put it that way for anybody mm-hmm. who knows the production stuff a little bit better correct me if i'm wrong here but please do it gently i do recall back in the day hearing stuff that a lot of those vignettes were made post-production so yes i do think that's true yeah they just got bill and a camera and then he just got him to for i think like three or four hours to just say random crap mm-hmm. <laughs> and i'm wondering if that had to do with the fact that he couldn't get the movie distributed and so it's like, crap, it's not long enough. I need to make a longer movie. <laughs> and at the same time, I need to put more in it, but they want me to actually take out all of the violent stuff. So what can I do? I'm going to go philosophical with it. And then he made it way worse. I love when directors do this, how they're like, I'm going to say shit in my movie now. Mm-hmm. That's going to make you more uncomfortable than any knife on skin that you've ever, ever seen. Well, and then that's exactly it because, and and I don't know if that, is what he was thinking, but it definitely could be because it was hard to to get it distributed, and it had at one point it was going to get um, a rating that 
was uh, higher than an R rating in the U.S. It was going to be an NC-17 rating, which is right. really hard to get out there. Um, so he did have to cut stuff and then put some other stuff in. And it's like, okay, if we're going to cut the splatter and the violence, but he still wants to make a disturbing movie, then you have to go psychological. And it, ratings boards don't really weight that the same. You know, you can have a terrifying, upsetting, disturbing movie, but if there's no blood or sex on screen, then you can get a lot by. So I do think a lot of the themes and the vibe of this movie are so disturbing and disgusting, and it goes along with the violence that you're seeing. But I do, I think they need one another. Uh, yeah, I agree. I also feel like it's worth pointing out that you said that this was made in 2000, so mm-hmm. for one, we're pre-9-11, and as as much as I hate mm-hmm. to talk about post-9-11 anything, since we're post-post-post at this point, uh, it's still important to, like, the filmmaking world, storytelling, all of that, the, way, the things you could get away with before and then after. It was very interesting to see the difference there, because afterwards, although there was a huge push against violence, there was way more violence on screen. There was just so much exploration yes. of this deep-seated angst everybody was going through at the time. Mm-hmm. And this movie comes out after 9-11 and fits perfectly with all of the other really hard-edged, angry kind of movies, but it mm-hmm. doesn't have the same sentiment behind it. It is far more, I'm just trying to entertain you, and then has a bit more of that philosophy behind it and it does feel to me like we're in the era of the censorship boards going nuts you know y2k mm-hmm. was when we're like let's cleanse everything and make it happy happy clean 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 and they were trying to make sure that movies just felt really pristine and pure and nice and then here's Ro- zombie with like well i have dr satan in my movie I'm <laughs> and so i could see I, you see a lot of filmmakers at the time doing this too i mean tarantino was also doing that kind of stuff with kill bill it's like what can i how can I push it? Because they're trying to push me constantly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I do see that a little bit as a message to your censorship board. It's like, you know, their limitations were things like, you can't have sex, you can't have violence too much into it. And he's like, okay, but you never said anything about nudity, nor did you say anything about just disturbing images. Fish boy. Fish boy, yeah. <laughs> right. But so, like, to get back to the, the image of, of the girl in the trunk, though, it's mm-hmm. really like, it again these girls when they're dead are made up in such a way that just look like props mm-hmm. probably are props for all we know and the mere fact that it's not seeing human on human violence nor is there any way to know if there's anything sexually involved she's just not wearing clothes and she has a branding on her basically mm-hmm. and then to get that i hope you like what you see it just feels so strong of like if you've been offended by this movie well how what about this I yep. hope you like it. I hope you're happy now that that I did the tame thing, which is not, you know, it's more disturbing than him just showing somebody get stabbed, which was, you know, pretty easy to just spurt some blood and then move on. Right. <laughs> which I also love. Don't get me wrong. Oh, I yeah. love violence and splatter in the movies, but um, I do think like one of the reasons House of a Thousand Corpses has stood the test of time is because... It is of that time, that early 2000s edgy time, 
But like you said, that's not the message it's trying to send. It was much more just trying to entertain us than it was responding to something, you know, that hadn't happened yet. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why it's still so watchable all these years later. Um, Otis's I hope I like what you see kind of feels like a response to at the very beginning of the film when Captain Spaulding is shooting the people who come to rob him and he's saying like, fuck your mother, fuck your grandma and everything. And the last thing he says, he looks straight into the camera and says, and most of all, fuck you. And then he shoots. And it's, I mean, that's Rob Zombie telling us right at the start of the movie, like, I am not here. I don't really care if you like this. I'm going to make this movie. Fuck you if you don't like it. And then like, you know, 45-ish minutes later, we get, I hope I like what you see. It's kind of a reminder of like, hey, are you still here? I told you I didn't (laughs) care about your comfort. Are you still here? And I think that really, yeah, that carries the disgust through. Interesting. You know, it's only through this conversation that I'm starting to notice this sort of pattern. Because if you want to look at it almost in a power of three now there could be more moments like this in the film obviously you had baby with her little vignettes as well but you know if there's another really powerful moment with uh otis that's in the third act of the film so you have yes. the first act this and i would say that this moment of the hope i like hope you like what you see is roughly in the the second act you know yep. we already have the they're already been abduct, abducted and everything right that's when they're looking for them yep cool so then in the third act you have run rabbit run yes run rabbit run rabbit and you'll never get away so he's making it clear like fuck you i hope you like what you see because you can't get away from it yep (laughs) yep (laughs) and it's so forceful i think that's another thing that makes the film feel so icky it's Mm -hmm. just this it's an assault on the audience as much as it's an assault on the characters in the film but if you're in on it you're the firefly firefly family Mm-hmm. If you're not in on it, you are Jerry and everybody else who's just being dragged around and going, what the fuck, man? <laughs> and, <laughs> and I, so, okay. Um, if I may ask, I, I always ha- hate asking people about their ages and stuff, but like, do you know roughly how old you were when this movie came out? Um. Okay. 2003. I was 16. Okay. I was a roughly the same. Yes. Okay. Did you also hear at school, like, the legacy and rumors of this fucked up snuff film that Rob Zombie was working on? I did not. Okay. So, um, I grew up in a very small town, and we didn't get, like, cool horror releases or anything Mm. like that. So, I didn't even see this movie until I like a few years later when I was in college and someone in my dorm had it and I was like oh my god what is this Rob Zombie he made a movie um (laughs) yeah pretty much yeah I I was late to this party so I didn't hear about that but I have heard other people say that did you hear about it yeah so in my schools and okay I went I lived in a small town too okay Mississippi I remind you so, although we didn't get a lot of major releases, we still had some of your major chains for, like, home release. So, we still had Blockbusters. Okay. We still had a, well, may it rest in peace, but we had an FYE. So Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, you know, you know, that's where I got a lot of my DVDs and stuff from. And there was just, 
years before this movie even came out. I was just getting into horror proper. Like, like yourself, I can't think of a moment in my life when I wasn't around horror in some capacity because of the Nickelodeon shows, the books I was reading. Mm-hmm. My mom also had just 17 Stephen King books on the shelves, all that mm-hmm. stuff. But that's still like, it's a relationship with the genre on a more distant level. It wasn't me actually thinking of it as a genre and trying to seek it out. Yeah. Like when I went to the video stores, that that whole section, I was like, oh no, I like I kind of avoided it because it was scaring the crap out of me for a long time <laughs> until I was old enough to rent them myself. And so in school, I think it was already around like 99, you know, when the Blair Witch Project is coming out. Mm-hmm. And I'm already hearing the murmuring from the kids. I was like 13, 14. And Rob Zombie had come out with Hellbilly Deluxe. It was the first album mm-hmm. I ever bought. That was just like the first oh, I ever bought for myself. That's fun. So that's cool a fun fact. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I was into all kinds of music, but that one I saw on the shelf. I was like, nobody's ever going to buy this for me. Because <laughs> you know, <laughs> these Christian Southern people, I'm going to have to buy this myself. So, <laughs> so, and it was at Walmart. It was the edited version. You can get it. Of course. Um, so I was really into it, loved it. And then people, like, I, you know how it goes. You know, a kid just happens to have somebody who knows something who knows something exactly this kid kid was just like you know he's making a movie right i was like get the fuck out of here and (laughs) we just had this conversation for ages he's like no he's making a movie and it just became the stuff of legend because we Mm. were hearing more and more about how it was like this vile nasty thing that was meant to test the sensor boards it was supposed to be like equivalent to a snuff film people weren't ready for it the censors didn't want to have it and all these things were kind of true but none of the intention behind it was really true it was just we were hearing people's responses to the movie basically and then you just think like oh wow this is like hardcore shit basically even though if you look back on it now it's a for 2003 i guess it goes kind of hard but i mean that's the same Mm -hmm. year we got the texas chainsaw massacre remake so Mm -hmm. movies were going hard Yes, they were they were about to go hard for about 10 years at this point. And now we're going hard on just every other level. We're just <laughs> yes. We're now we're doing brain. feelings. We're doing emotions and trauma that I mean, I'm here for all of it. Oh, yeah. And it was just so wild for me how the movie finally came out. I was like, I've heard about so many movies that were just the stuff of legend. You know, Tarantino's making this. Tim Burton's making that. Mm-hmm. Oh, this Friday the 13th is being created. F- Freddy vs. Jason was one of those movies that you hear about yes. in 20 years. And then suddenly it's made. And the thing with the Rob Zombie one was, it was always true. And I was just in awe when this movie came out. Because it came out on that VHS with the black background. And then it was like, it was like the cover of Zombie, the Fulci film. Uh-huh. It's just this decayed face. Yep. And it said House of a Thousand Corpses. And I was like, I cannot believe there's an actual movie in my hand. <laughs> called House of a Thousand <laughs> Corpses. It just rattled me up so much because movies like that were not made anymore. They really weren't. We were coming off the a very glossy, slick 90s slasher yeah. cycle. And we had not yet, you know, when f- production wrapped in the year 2000, and then we got this movie in 2003, like we hadn't even really dipped our toe into what would later be called torture porn yet. Mm-hmm. So when this movie came out, it was a big deal. It was 
such a strange time, I'd say. It, especially because like it didn't get a lot of media fanfare until it came out. Until right. the controversy started hitting and you know, I saw the movie and I was like, this did not live up to anything that anybody said it was gonna <laughs> be. Later in life I started watching like Fulci and, and a lot of the Italian seventies horror films. I'm like, I think that's the movie people thought this was gonna be. Mm, um mm-hmm. but I can see the influences here as well. The gloopiness, the nastiness this this attention to too much detail you as you were saying you yes the food right yeah it there's so much texture Ooh, in yes. in the house like every place you look in the house of a thousand corpses there's something that has been like sullied by humans like baby has her wall where she's chopped up all her dolls and hung them up um or there will be dirty dishes or there will be clothes strewn about it's just like that house really feels lived in and sort of like messed up (laughs) by humans in a way that that really adds to the whole vibe of the film yes and it's also, like I like how you put it, how like, it has been touched by humans. So it's not mm-hmm. just the family. Of course, they're the ones who live in the squalor. But mm-hmm. it's just the fact that you can kind of feel like somebody owned this. Somebody yeah. used this before they had it. And it's kind of like, I think the film makes a lot of everyday stuff disgusting. Yes. And it's almost like Zombie is talking to the people who do that. Because, you know, he's lived in trailers. He's gone on the carny, you know, life with his parents and stuff. He knows what it's like to just, like, hey, I've had this rag for 20 years, but you got some mud on your face. You might want to wipe it off. You don't care about if it's acceptable, necessarily. You survive. But when people look down on that, you know, you want to make fun of people who are poor. Or you want to make fun of people who just don't have the means because they're not given anything you you basically create a system of disgust to put them down mm-hmm. and i love that he's trying to show all of those things in a proper way it's like what's disgusting about getting something secondhand well right maybe if you take it off the corpse yep or if you like don't wash it otis <laughs> then it's wash gross, it. it's <laughs> gross. Uh, I, now I'm imagining all of the secondhand stores that have to deal with people who are kind of like Otis, who's just like, hey, I'm doing my good deed here. I donated all this. And you're like, you haven't watched this in like two years, have you? Yeah, it's rough. <laughs> so <Yeah>. nasty. <laughs> <laughs> um, but texture, I love that you use that word. Yeah, there's a lot of it here. And I think, what would you say is the most common kind of textural vibe or experience that the film presents throughout its runtime? Hmm. That's a good question. I, the first word that came to my mind was like grit. Grit. Okay. But I think like, like griminess, like, you know, when you put your hand on something and you're kind of like, Ooh, what is that? Like, it's not, not like wet and sticky goop, but like maybe nobody's dusted this in 20 years or like, Mm somebody set a muddy thing down on it and now there's just like caked mud on it um 
because baby and rj are out in the rain quite a bit and they feel very comfortable with that they don't seem to be bothered by that and you know otis has we've touched on his like gross clothing that he hasn't washed and it the film definitely sends a lot of love to the original texas chainsaw massacre by having Mm -hmm. like the shed full of animal bones and the the girls propped up in a tableau kind of way with all those animal parts so it does make me just feel like if you were to touch things in that house they would feel really gritty yeah i see what you're saying yeah and even beyond the house i've noticed like if you look at the uh the college kids they are all kind of greasy they don't seem Mm -hmm. to like bathe they're going on a road trip their hair's all matted and nasty. And there's like, even before they get abducted, they're just kind of like not well kempt because they're just, mm-hmm. they're just kids doing stuff. Their car kind of sucks. It's all rusty. Captain Spaulding's is probably the cleanest place presented. In Which the is not good. <laughs> That's no. not good. Oh, well, okay. No, you do see one instance. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. You have the house of, uh, was it Denise's dad? Yeah, yeah, that's a normal, that's a normal place. Yeah, Yeah. there's a huge contrast between those two for sure. Yes, but still, of the like Firefly Texas area, Mm -hmm. it's amazing to me that Captain Spaulding is the one place where I'm like, I mean, he mops. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) you're right. He has cleaning supplies around. Yeah, and you know, we know why he has them now. Um, Right. You got to clean up your your food preparation, basically. (laughs) Um, Gross. Well, hey, you got to get. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He never yep. said the chickens were of uh, ovarian uh, sort. Or <laughs> oh, goodness. Sort, I <laughs> and I also found it interesting. So, like I was saying, like how he, you know, Zombie, has presented kind of normal things in a very disgusting way. He also seems mm-hmm. to do that more with marginalization as well. That's why I found it so interesting with that fucking uh, Confederate flag thing. It really gets in my head because in the same movie, we have Tiny. Yeah. And Tiny is presented in a way of to show you, like, this is how you treat disabled people and people with, uh, you know, physical and visual disfigurements and disabilities. Mm-hmm. And yet he's kind of sweet, really nice. He just loves his family and they treat him with a lot of respect. He's one of the most well-respected members of the family. He doesn't attack anybody. He just picks them up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And then just to make it clear, like, yeah, but, you know, this is how you're feeling, right? You have the moment where he's, like, eating the cereal. And you mm-hmm. like, get it in its mouth. And you're like, ugh, ugh, tiny. Uh, and I love these little moments of, like, if you happen to be a nice person <laughs> and don't see tiny this way, now you do. Just, we're, mm-hmm. we're not going to let you get by here. We're going to force you to really experience that lens of seeing people as disgusting and then really challenge you to ask yourself but why mm-hmm. yeah interesting to me tiny's a really good example because he's i mean he's played by a very tall actor but then they also you know say that he got burned in a fire and so he has to wear a mask and he kind of limps and shuffles around and you do have that scene where it's the cereal is really gross and it kind of looks like dog food like it's in a cereal box and i can't remember what the name on it is but it always i'm like is he eating dog food and just like the milk dribbling down his chin and stuff and so 
yeah, if you think Tiny is going to be the the character who like doesn't fit in with the Firefly family and is going to be the one to save the day, it's like no, he's also disgusting. It's just not for the reasons you originally thought. Um, yeah. It also says a lot about prejudice. I love that he's using actors that you could easily have a prejudice against. Even Bill Mosley as Otis, like, you know, you could have a bias towards him and like him because you like Chop Top, but you could also have this prejudice <laughs> of like, oh, but he's just like this little hick, you know, stupid hick. Yes. All these stupid white guy values. And that's all true. It is true. But it's not really until you evaluate do you dislike the guy because he speaks with an accent or do you dislike <laughs> the guy because ideologically he's beyond reprehensible? You did that accent pretty good. I can tell you're from Mississippi. It does come and go. Yeah. <laughs> How did I forget Bill Mosley was Chop Top until this moment? To be, uh, to be fair, I have never seen <gasps> TCM2. Okay. And uh, so for me, Chop Top is a myth. Okay. Why. Okay. But, uh, I've seen images and stuff, but uh, I just I heard about it and learned about it probably last three, four years ago, something like that. So it, it's I guess it's just so fresh in my mind. That's why I just keep kind of popping into my head. Yeah. No, that's fair. I I really associate him with his role as Otis, and I Same. sort of like forget that he does any other acting. I guess <laughs> it's not fair it's to so him. Perfectly. Yeah. It, it, it is a role that was clearly designed for him, but it's also a role that he really took to. And uh, I just, the power of him just going with it and not really questioning a lot, it seems, just kind of, hell, mm -hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if Bill Mosley was like, can I make him worse? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. I mean, if, especially if those vignettes were added later, I wonder if some of them were ad libbed. Oh, they were, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think it was like like Zombie was just giving him like just one-liners for didn't say okay improvise us. Okay. Like okay yeah and but they oh I remember now yes okay I remember the whole story now the reason they made the vignettes is because he didn't feel that Otis uh was despicable enough. Okay. Uh, Bill Mosley was too nice and you said you can see <laughs> the transformation in the character through the progression of the film. Okay. Because they filmed a lot of his scenes with the family at the dinner table and stuff that was some of the earliest stuff they did and it mm -hmm. was mostly who was a bit like I, I don't know you keep wanting things from me and i i don't know if i'm doing them and i don't know if i get this guy i just don't get like what the fuck man and i think he was having the same problems like i'm wearing a confederate flag hat and you're all, you're like i don't get him and rob's like okay they just spent a few hours just doing some improv based on character description to say, like, okay, what would he say if you asked him this question in an interview? What would he say here? Mm -hmm. Now, this is a scenario. Can you give me a manifesto on all that? Mm. So he, that was actually, like, training material and rehearsal material that was just good shit. <laughs> so, <laughs> Sweet. Movie. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> And you can see that viciousness that comes in later in the film when he's really taking over as the patriarch of the family. That's when yes. he's already established all those things uh, in those vignettes. And it do, it is true, like his scenes at the dinner table are some of his most tame. So I could totally see that being like, we need to add in more 
Yeah, I mean, you don't get the run, rabbit, run until you get the whole, like, hunting humans. It ain't nothing but nothing. Yeah. You gotta get that speech of him just acting like it's uh, going fishing. Yeah. Oh, man, that's so true. I just kind of got chills thinking about that. <laughs> I also want to bring up, you were talking about the sound. I love talking about mm -hmm. sound and aesthetics because it's very overlooked. So I agree with you that you could just turn it on and listen. It's almost like zombie wanted to keep that kind of radio play vibe in mind as well since all older films from like the mm, 30s and mm -hmm. the 40s they were often played on the radio as well since most of it was very dialogue heavy and where do you find that the sense of disgust kind of comes into play like what sorts of like soundscapes and stuff are you talking about mm, mm -hmm. um i don't I don't know if this is discussed exactly, but I find babies laugh really unsettling. <laughs> yeah. Not only the sound of it, but the times when it happens. So I like I think her laugh is actually a really important part of this overall sound of the movie. Um, there's also and we've talked about food already, so I won't go into it too much, but there's a lot of like eating sounds. And um, there's a lot of like spitting of of food, like talking with your mouth full and spitting food out. And so like the sound of that, I think, is really very clear in the film. Um, there's not as much violent sound, but there's a lot of um, like, especially when Denise ends up underground and she finds all of Dr. Satan's victims that are just sort of sitting around being tested on underground. There's a lot of like murmuring and human sounds that are overlapping that I can't even really describe. It just sort of sounds like too many people in one place sort of existing. Mm. I know I'm not describing it well, but that's because I think it's really unique and well done. Uh, <laughs> but the sound in that place is so creepy. And of course, walking into that would be creepy no matter what, but like the overlapping murmuring sounds you get with it are just take it to another level, I think. I'm so happy you brought this up. <laughs> I wonder if Zombie might be a little bit of a germaphobe or mm -hmm. at the very least a bit of a xenophobe because he can't be too much of a xenophobe coming from the carny background, but it isn't it so much like the most nightmare version of being in a doctor's waiting room that you've ever experienced? Yeah, absolutely is. Because it's like, and I'm a little bit of a germaphobe, and so I can relate to this. And, and you know, I don't, I don't want to be, but like, it, it is what it is. Like, sitting there and you're like, what's the person next to me sick with? Am I going to catch yeah. something from them? And like, in Dr. Satan's waiting room, like, again, people are eating. And it's like, what are you doing eating in a doctor's waiting room, even though it is Dr. Satan? Like, there's so many things in this film that just feel, like, unclean and, like, you're going to catch something. And so germy. Like, there's a lot of, sh they're sharing drinks. There's one point where mm -hmm. Baby puts her finger into Bill's hot cocoa and i'm just like oh my god i wouldn't finish that like you don't know where her <laughs> finger has been um so maybe rob jump rob zombie is somewhat of a germaphobe because it really does hit the germaphobe vibe 
and if not, I think he's just really good at observing people. Yes. And like, what triggers people? Because he's yep. just about every trigger in the film he could, apart from a lot of social stuff. You know, he, he gets on the base level with that. It's really just like, maybe being a nihilist who wants to kill people is kind of bad enough. <laughs> Don't need to throw a lot of oppression and, and all that other stuff that, that, you know, every day pisses us off. Uh, but then he's just like, but I am going to, you know, get this chick to stick her finger in your drink. <laughs> right, right. And that's worse for me. Um, you know, what's interesting, too, is like, there's not a lot of overlap of sex and violence in this film. No. And it could be that they are sexually assaulting their victims and we don't see it. But it was a choice not to put it in the film or even to really allude to it. There are a lot of naked bodies that we see, some of them that are meant to be shot as props, as we've talked about, and some of them mm -hmm. that are meant to be sexy. And yeah. then in a lot of the like cutaway vignettes, there's like footage of women in their underwear dancing with skeletons. And so it's like <laughs> creepy sexy, but there's no, outright sexual violence in this film and there's not even a shot of like you know otis fondling somebody before he cuts them or anything like that and i think that's really interesting especially for this era you know and as we've said house of a thousand corpses kind of happened before the era that it later got lumped in with so maybe that wasn't as much of a thing you could get away with in a movie when this was shot but i also think that adds to why it's still rewatchable now because you don't have to reckon with that kind of disgust that is a piece of disgust that is missing mm -hmm. from this movie and and that's it's fine with me. I'm not saying it's missing in a way of like, I want it there. It just, it's absent, you know? And yeah, interestingly enough, like the closest it really comes to that is more the power play, you know, stripping yep. people of their, you know, freedoms. And, you know, in The Devil's Rejects, we get it a little bit more overtly in that he does strip people down to their underwear and make them naked. He does fondle somebody. But again, it's just to to basically the only thing he's getting off on is watching people respond to what he's doing to somebody mm -hmm. and so it's a very interesting deviation there as well he likes to kind of fuck with honestly to make his characters even worse he shows how they don't even value it but it's not a good thing you know it's a terrible mm -hmm. thing because they don't value human life of any kind so what we would say is sexual assault they would say is playing with their food Right. And that's the fucked up part about it. It's like, that's worse than just assaulting somebody sexually, because it's like you are stripping us down to such a level that it it's even hard to imagine what how that would feel to know that somebody's doing this to you and they're not even getting the pleasure that your brain is telling you that they're getting. So you're so confused in that situation. I think the only implication they really have in House of a Thousand Corpses is possibly that Baby might do that because she's the more sexually active. I mean, mm -hmm. Mother Firefly for sure does. Because <laughs> she is, she's ready to go. She's <laughs> ready to go, yes. <laughs> but I don't know. She also seems to be classy. She kind of like, she seems to like consent. Yeah. She feels like the kind of woman who wouldn't make a move. She would be like, it's the man's role to make a move on me. You know, yeah. like, I don't know if that's true, but 
you know, if this story is meant to take place in the 70s, then she probably was in her heyday in like the late 50s, early 60s. Mm-hmm. I mean, so. the fact they got Karen Black to play the role just like is a perfect, you know, one in one of like, you, know, you were the starlet who were who was in those movies. And now you get to be this wonderful kind of debutante who just sits around and lets her kids do whatever they want to do. <laughs> Yeah, she she I mean all the performances in this film are really great. I mm-hmm. and especially like you know, I'm not a big fan of all of Rob Zombie's movies and I do think like some of the acting is stronger than others, some of the dialogue is stronger than others, but like the dialogue and the acting in House of a Thousand Corpses, I'm like can we get that back for whatever your next movie is? Like mm-hmm. however that magic happened. Because I genuinely think everybody does an awesome job. It doesn't seem too over the top. It seems exactly the amount of over the top it should be. Which is interesting to think about, considering of the films in the trilogy, this is the only one that has, like, actual undead corpses, you know, reanimated Mm -hmm. corpses, and Dr. Satan, and genetic experiments, and an underground lair, and all kinds of crazy shit, and ghouls, Mm -hmm. and yet... The rest of them are just straight up, no, this is just the Manson family, the documentary, Breaking Bad series movie. Thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, you're right. Like the dialogue and stuff or as over the top as the movie itself is, is so perfectly, I would say cinematic. I think that's a great mm-hmm. way to put it because it's still not realistic, but it is. No. It hits film language pretty strongly. Just enough to kind of make its point but maybe that's the problem maybe the others weren't really making much of a point they were just <laughs> there because he needed to keep making money on those uh characters i'm not too sure but this one oh, no. sure, you as you were saying too like you know you have that vibe of hey this might be the only movie i ever get to make right it kind of feels like he was just going for it Mm-hmm. oh yeah oh yeah there's also uh, so when i'm thinking of the disgust in the film there are it's an image and a sound that kind of go together. And for me, it's just like squelch. Mm. They're so, yeah. That yeah. Hurts. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's just so much moisture in this film, um, whether it's mouth noises or later. I mean, obviously people like coughing up blood, things like this. Mm-hmm. But it really, really hammers home in that third act when – Denise is the one who survives, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it was when Denise ends up going down into Dr. Satan's lair. Oh, and his mouth face thing under his mask is just like Carl. a... yeah. A whole... Earl. Ca- Earl. That Earl. Mm-hmm. 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 Yes. Yes. It's just like a sucker, like, a, like those fish in the tanks who clean the tank with their sucker mouth. Like he has one of those. That is... The heart of Squelch. Yes, that's the thing I'm thinking of the most. It's like he has this horrible Darth Vader asthma voice mm-hmm. that just like it's way worse because Darth Vader at least has the cool kind of like mechanics behind it. But this you just hear is like, <laughs> and you know he's coming, and his skin is all pasty and it's wet for some reason. Even though he haven't he hasn't been walking around in anything wet, he's just sweating profusely, and then he takes that breathalyzer out of his mouth it is by far in my opinion the most disgusting shot in the entire film yes 
It is. I feel bad for that actor. <laughs> yeah. Unless it was custard. Maybe that that would have been okay, I suppose. But you're wasting custard. But I just like this green pus. Just, yep. It doesn't even ooze out. It just like falls out of his mouth. Right. Ooze would imply some sort of like plan. You know, right. this just kind of plops and falls yeah. and it's, it's, you're right. He's like wet. It's almost like his skin is seeping. Like it makes me think mm -hmm. of like a wound, like when a wound is healing and it's kind of seeping oh. into a band. That's what his yeah. skin is. It's very gross. <laughs> so fucking terrible. <laughs> and I love that he's kind of been this boogeyman alongside Dr. Satan the entire mm -hmm. film. And we get Dr. Satan, and he's kind of pathetic. He's just like... Yeah. Eh, he's past just, his prime. Exactly. Maybe he's just been doing it too long. But, like, he's on. He's like a marionette. He's got his own little, like, hydraulic puppeteering system so he can actually do his work. Yeah. Um, but then Earl. Like, I love that Earl's mentioned, like, twice, I think, earlier in the film. Yeah, it's very in passing. But the way Karen Black delivers it, which is like, oh, but when Earl went mad, it was just a bad day, a bad, bad day. And mm -hmm. it's like, this woman's saying it's a bad day. Right. <laughs> right. And then you meet him, he lives up to everything. And I think it's quite a decision to make that guy disgusting. Yeah. It is. Especially because you expect the big bad villain to be Dr. Satan and then like you said, he's kind of frail. So then we get Earl, who is, like, huge, for one thing, and just very, very gross, and, you know, more able-bodied than Dr. Satan. He seems like he's Dr. Satan's henchman mm -hmm. at this point. And when Mama Firefly is talking about Earl, it's I always am like, wait, what the fuck? Because she says something like, well, he wasn't bad. He didn't beat us or nothing. And then one day he burned the house down. And yeah. I'm like, whoa, there's so much to unpack there. We don't have time. Like, we're measuring people's goodness based on whether or not they beat us. Okay, number one. Number two, then you just are kind of like, yeah, and then he burned the house down. Like, there's, we need to talk, girl. Mm -hmm. Also, like, where did this house come from then? What the? <laughs> what do you yeah. mean? Like, what? Okay. Uh, clearly some growth has taken place at some point <laughs> in this family. Uh, yes. Probably just moved in, killed everybody, and, and you know, and, and did that and, and took the ranch. And yeah. you know what's funny to me as well is, like, we have been able to have such a detailed conversation about this film. Now, I mean, not, you know, not as detailed as a scene-by-scene -scene kind of thing. There are many scenes we haven't discussed, but we're just talking about, like, on a vibe level. Mm -hmm. For anybody who hasn't seen it, I just want to make it really clear, like, we may have only touched upon, like, a few aspects, but they're everywhere. It's just a continuous vibe. Like, we could pick any mm -hmm. scene from this film, apart from Denise's dad's house, and find these elements. And yeah, we would have a completely different discussion if I was talking about beauty, the sublime, yeah. all of these things, because it's all there. In fact, one of my favorite shots, I know we're not talking about beauty, and if ever somebody brings it up for beauty, I'll gush about it for longer <laughs> than I'm going to do now. But I feel that I can't talk about the aesthetics of this film without talking about this one scene. It's got to be when uh, Denise's dad 
and the deputy get killed. I that is my favorite scene. Same. Yep. Fucking scene. I think it's the scene that made me go, I love this movie. Yeah. The crane shot, and it just holds, and it holds. And it's so ballsy to just hold that shot for as long as it does. Yeah. I remember when I first saw it, I saw it on DVD, and I was just like, is it broken? I just installed. Because it's so quiet, too. All the sound drops out. And you have this... So okay, we could still talk about disgust even in this scene, though, because although there's nothing mm-hmm. super disgusting other than finding the cheerleaders in the uh, shed, I think is what they find. And mm-hmm. she's, oh, it's Denise. And she just starts screaming her head off with all the dead cheerleaders, like, strung up on chains around her. And you – the thing that got me, though, is the song that he chose. Yeah. The I Remember You. Yep. That, it's, such, it's such a jovial little country – Diddy, <laughs> and then we have the slow mo, no sound, light world sound in the background. It's like a slow mo music video of these two guys getting murdered. Actually, yeah, yeah. Sorry, is this is it the deputy or the sheriff? Actually, no, I think it was Sheriff Wydell. Yeah, he's the one that gets shot. Sure, there's some gloop. You know, when you get the close up of Mama Firefly shooting him in the forehead, mm-hmm. but it's that song, and then. I think what always gets me too is it gets super quiet, and then the next time we get diegetic sound, is the gunshot. Yep. And then you hear the birds flying away, which shows how quiet of a moment it ended up being when he got him down on his knees. Mm-hmm. It's so disturbing. It is. And that—that's the scene where it's like, oh shit, Rob Zombie is a filmmaker. Like, you know, and. I'm kind of waiting for to feel that again in his, you know, <laughs> another movie of his. But like he can do it. Maybe yeah. he's the right, you know, cinematographer. Mm-hmm. That could also have played a lot into this. There, there yep. are a few cinematographers on the film. Um, let me bring them up real quick. So I think we have to thank for a lot of these shots. We have Alex Papas and Tom Richmond, who just knock it out of the park with this film. Yeah. The lighting, the framing. The framing is so good. I think that also contributes a lot to that disgusting feeling for a lot of the shots. You're it does. You're underneath them a lot. Looking mm-hmm. up in their nostrils and stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, which, again, makes me feel a little bit like I'm watching the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but in a in a good way, obviously. Right, right. Um I don't know if there was anything else. I'm trying to think if there's anything in my notes. And um, on a level of disgust, I'm, I'm, I'm reaching a little bit now. So I don't know if there's anything, other scenes from the film that maybe you wanted to discuss or maybe another aspect that we haven't touched upon yet. Um, We haven't talked about Otis wearing Denise's dad's skin. Oh. That's a bit disgusting. It's a little gross. Um, It's a little bit gross. And because not only do we see the act, we see him skinning uh, the dad. And we we see the act of that happening and the flesh peeling. We see the body after it's been skinned. And he didn't bother to skin the whole body, just the parts that he wanted to wear. So we see the shot of the corpse that you know, is mutilated. Parts of it are still whole, but he's taken the whole face. So again, we've got like seeping wounds, bloody, 
gross face with no skin. And then we see Otis wearing the skin, which, you know, classic. And it's like drooping off his face and he's he's got his hair underneath and his hair is absorbing some of the gloop. And he's wearing the chest, but the chest has the bullet wounds in it. So mm-hmm. there's a couple holes in the chest. And just the horror that Denise must have felt to see her dad's skin walking down the stairs at her. And they're teasing her with that horrible who's your daddy chant as they're doing it. And it's just, that part's a bit disgusting. Shit, yeah. I don't know why I forgot to bring that one up. Because there's so much. It's true. This This is the only detriment to the film that I can kind of feel, other than maybe other, like, aging stuff like yeah okay maybe there are certain elements that haven't aged as well because it's from 2003 but um it's the fact that there's just so much going on i love that but i can recall a lot of reviews who did bring up the fact like they felt it was a little unfocused and Mm -hmm. that third act i think is what makes it feel so unfocused because you had a pretty nice tight-knit kind of movie especially with the chasing down the cheerleaders comes to finding the house and Yada, yada, yada. If that had stopped there and gone straight into The Devil's Rejects, perfect, you know, bookends uh, of a film. But because we have all the Dr. <laughs> Satan stuff, uh, yeah, it gets a little unhinged. But <laughs> this stuff, what I love about it, too, is that this is the kind of stuff that you would think. It's like, oh, well, if all the wacky shit got dropped in the later films, this is the kind of stuff, right? It's like, no, nah, he's still wearing people's faces and shit. <laughs> the devil's <laughs> so, it's just part of who he is. That's just the thing that counts. Yeah. And yeah. I, also, the way he delivers that speech to him mm. coming down. Like, I'm the one that, what is it, kisses you goodnight? Who's you? Mm-hmm. It, oh. It's disgusting in so many levels. Yeah. Uh, just hearing, for one, hearing Bill Mosley say, who's your daddy to you, it's already kind of like, you know you did, Bill. You know, <laughs> yeah. You know how I feel about that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but then, yeah, the, the implication as well that he is dressed as her father, mm-hmm. saying it to her. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, that, that is one moment, I think, that comes close to the insinuation of sexual assault. Yeah, it does. It's, it's got a gross vibe to it in that way. Yeah, but I think that's all it is. It's just him mm-hmm. trying to trigger the shit out of his victim. Yep. And then, now I'm going to put you in a bunny suit and make you run around. Yep. God damn it, that movie. <laughs> um, yeah? Oh, go ahead. No, no, no. Oh, well, I was going to ask if we can spoil the ending. Oh, for sure, yeah. Spoilers abound. Uh, okay. You mentioned who dies and stuff, so uh, what, what was it you wanted to get into from the ending? Well, um, the feeling... They give you enough of a feeling of relief when she gets in the car with Captain Spaulding, who at this point we still think might just be a good guy because he talked to the cops and, you know, said, I've seen these missing kids. And again, they hold that just long enough before Otis pops up in the back seat and goes to slit her throat. So it's it's another disgust on like a gut punch level where you're like oh she's gonna get away this is our sally hardesty she's being driven away by someone who stopped on the road for her but then it's more like a friday the 13th jason jumping up out of the water it's even shot very similarly how like Mm -hmm. in friday the 13th they do it in a kind of weird it's not even 
messing with the frame rate it's almost like it's just different tableaus kind of put together goes like yeah and in slow motion and same here he's done something really interesting with the i don't know the motion blur of the whole thing and how, mm -hmm. how fast it all is it's very disjointed and it gets yes. grittier and grainier too it starts to look more like it's a film reel mm -hmm. that that was a very disturbing ending and it's especially knowing it, it was made in 2000 we didn't get a lot of horror films that just sucked the life out of you like that at the time no get you know this was i'm so happy for it that it came out the year before saw because i think people would have felt that this was banking on the game over moment at the end of saw mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but that's satisfying this was not satisfying this is just right like, these people <laughs> yep and then you just sit with that and it's like you've been rooting for her the whole time we're coming off a slasher craze where we've all had final girls that we can cheer for and we know that they'll survive and so she's telegraphed as our final girl very early on and we're with her the whole way and she makes it out and we're like oh captain spaulding he's a good guy he already proved that so it's just like a very final like kick in the stomach from Rob Zombie, which you know I love it, but it is technically <laughs> disgusting. Oh yeah, and yeah. Of course, you have like one of the most disgusting feelings you can have after a film is that that I need a shower kind of feeling because mm -hmm. you start to ask questions, and that means that you're not satisfied. It didn't mm -hmm. answer shit. You don't really know what the hell was going on with the Doctor Satan stuff. Mm -hmm. You don't know why Earl is that way and how they're alive, and most mm -hmm. importantly. You don't know if Captain Spaulding is going to be murdered or if he was in on it the entire time. Right. Which we know now, but... We know now, but... I don't think the intention in that film was that he was in on it. That's the vibe I got from it. But then again, uh, he does lead them there. And so... Hmm. Yeah, I always assumed he was. Yeah. That's but I don't know. He's pretty sinister, so... It's, but he's so likable that you have he is like, i think there's something about you that makes you like maybe you're just a bit of an asshole right yeah <laughs> but then again i guess if you're going to shoot robbers in the face who are people you happen to know you're not really like the most well-adjusted individual so nah, people are complicated right <laughs> people are complicated. <laughs> i think that's the takeaway from from Rob Zombie's House of a Thousand Corpses, people are complicated. That is very true. <laughs> One thing I will say that makes it the movie less of a you know wind out of your sails experience with that ending is subsequent views. I already mentioned that mm -hmm. the, the protagonists are not likable people. That's also very disgusting. They have a disgust for each other. There's mm -hmm. no trust. They just like constantly like uh -huh, to each other. They come across more like siblings than partners yeah it's which is kind of weirdly incestually gross it's like oh are you just both dating the equivalent of your sibling what? right you know those sorts of people yeah and, but then so with denise this is why i feel this is just a call to people out there of if you ever see me complain about a slasher movie and its kills <laughs> i'm usually <laughs> also responding to who got killed and who did the killing that always mm. is important mm -hmm. to me i think those like money like kind of kills i'm, I'm gonna go out you know what screw it i'm not gonna you know dance around it anymore i was not a fan of uh have you seen fear street yes okay i was not a fan of the bread slice kill 
And it had everything to do with the fact that they did everything in their power to redeem those characters. And then they give you a tragic mm. kill. I'm like, you don't mm -hmm. give me a money kill with a tragic kill. I can't, oh. I can't for this. This killer is a bad person. Like, it's a I see. Thing. So I was just kind of like, oh, but she just, I mean, she was a piece of shit earlier in the movie. But I kind of lost that feeling because the movie told me to think otherwise. Because she, yep. she apologized. So I'm like, so then you just stab her or something. Make it to where like, oh, no. Rose McGowan, not you. Yeah. <laughs> right. Noticed, you know, she got a cool kill, but it wasn't like we're like, yeah, I was just more like, damn. That's kind of mm -hmm. the response I get with Tatum. I'm like, damn. Um, this one's true. Like, I want that kill to be either the killer or the dude who's been like kind of, you know, awfully abusing people throughout the entire film, the jock, whatever. A faceless person who doesn't matter, you know, just completely one dimensional character. House of a Thousand Corpses for me does exactly what I love to see if you're going to do something like this and give me some real money kills with uh, your protagonists is that you can make, in fact, it does something that's even more impressive. They have made villains that are villains. Whereas, you know, like the Texas mm -hmm. Chainsaw Massacre has like, we kind of care enough about Sally and the rest of her team. I feel bad for Franklin, but for the rest of them, I'm like, y'all, you're waspy and you kind of suck. Um, but I feel more for Leatherface. I think a lot of us do how we're just like, um, you're just at home and you're just like, why are these people in my house? Right. <laughs> He's in a home invasion movie as far exactly. as he knows. Yeah. Exactly. This is not the case here. These are spiders in their lair and they're waiting for the flies to get on the web. Mm -hmm. they get there. They do their whole spiel. Oh, I don't know. It's going to take some time to fix your car. You know, it's all a setup. So you mm -hmm. have villainous villains, but you also have protagonists that aren't likable because it's Denise's dad that humanizes her. Up until yeah. that point, we're just watching people respond as you would to what the fuck is going on. It's like, here's shitty people, but it could be worse is basically what the movie did. <laughs> but yeah. But really sympathize with Rain Wilson in this movie. <laughs> no, fish boy. I'm, I'm all for <laughs> Yeah, so, no, fish boys. I'm good with that. That's fine with me. So they're very satisfying deaths and kills, even though you're also like, I don't want to watch it anymore. You can stop showing this to me. But they're like, oh, I have to remind you, though. Otis is a scary man. <laughs> like, yes, he is. Thank yeah. <laughs> yes. Thank you for the reminder. So it's always an intimidating ending to me. But in subsequent mm -hmm. views, I'm just like, Denise, you kind of didn't appreciate your father. You didn't really leave him in the loop on anything. Uh, you didn't appreciate your partner. This is a a moral tale basically. <laughs> of like you know she's not laurie strode that's for sure <laughs> right right that is yeah. true yeah and it's not like they had it coming of course i think that's you know when people have the whole oh they had it coming it's like to watch people die i don't know i get a movie that a lot of people love that bums me out a lot even though it does have eli roth getting just mangled and it's hilarious is Piranha 3D. Because I'm just like, mm. what's wrong with Spring Break? I don't like it, but like... <laughs> I, I, maybe if they had done just one thing that I was like, yeah, you shouldn't have been there. You know what I mean? I do know what you mean. For me, it depends a lot on my mood. As well. I'm, yeah. As well, for sure. Yeah, but I know I, what you mean. I can turn it off. I just, I'm one of those people that has a harder time doing it. Yep. And this movie is always so satisfying for me because I'm just like, you're all terrible. <laughs> Kill them. It's fine. I'm scared to death, though. <laughs> yep. 
And I like that, though, because it all comes back to what you were saying earlier, and it comes back to that beginning of the film, right? Mm -hmm. Fuck you. Yep. It has the most and then it ends with a fuck you. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. Also, an interesting thing, now that you mentioned it, because I always forget the ending of the film. I don't know why. I just keep forgetting that she ever gets out and goes mm -hmm. through. So it always surprises me every time I watch it. Um, but it isn't a great mirror to The Devil's Rejects, how they mirror that. But then it's the Fireflies who are in the car and they're getting shot down by the police. Oh, right. I haven't seen that in a long time, but I, that's like the only part of the movie I remember really well because it's, mem it's memorable. Free bird. You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <Free bird. laughs> you can't. Hell, I think that's even a wonderful, like, just, I know this is a different film, but I was just thinking about it. Uh, I'm tickled by it because, like I said, the House of a Thousand Corpses, it came out the same year as the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake. Mm -hmm. And then you have freaking Devil's Rejects two years later using Freebird at the end of the movie when in the remake of the Texas oh! they're going to see Leonard Skinner and they play Freebird. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. And never thought about that to now. It's all connected. It's <laughs> He's just remaking all the Texas Chainsaw Massacres. Oh, my God. Are we going to get his take on gentrification soon? Oh, I don't know if we need it. <laughs> oh, we Goodness. We really do not. We really I do just not. don't know. Uh, but I'm, I would love to see it, though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd watch it. Come on. Yes. I mean, if that would be a dumpster fire that would smell like one. Intentionally <laughs> He'd be like, yeah. what discourse? You know what this is. Yep. <laughs> Uh, well, I think we have gotten deep enough into the the, the goop of this. Film. Yeah, <laughs> um, I'm starting to feel those icky feelings again. So thank you very much. Oh, good. You've done a good job with this. <laughs> um, so I'm gonna wrap things up. This podcast is sponsored by Logic Locks. Logic Locks creates and facilitates immersive real life games for the masses. Is your company looking for an activity to do for your next team outing? Play their online game show experience. No pants required. Looking for a fright? Follow a curious researcher into the depths of the Amsterdam catacombs from the relative safety of your own home. Check out LogicLocks.com for more information. The Beauty of Horror is also proudly sponsored by the Anatomy of a Scream pod squad. For more introspective, semi-academic, and fun podcasts like this one, be sure to check out anatomyofascream.com. If you're interested in more of my musings on beauty and horror, horror in general, or as you can hear, my hot takes on why I may disagree with you on a discourse in a film, <laughs> uh, you can follow me on Twitter, which is at underscore shockaholic, and you can check out my website, shockaholic.org. Not updated all that often, but when it is, it's totally worth seeing. Uh, but dear listeners, I do want to know, what are your thoughts on House of a Thousand Corpses? Are you with us and consider it one of the best, if not the best, in zombies filmography? Or are you in that camp of, like, what best? Uh, I would love to hear from you. So please send your thoughts to me at Twitter, which is at BeautyHorrorPod, via email, BeautyOfHorrorPod at gmail.com, or on Discord if you are so inclined. I want to thank you again, Ariel, uh, for sitting down with me right now, talking about one of my favorite movies, to be honest. Like, it's not just my favorite zombie movie, but it is easily one of my favorite horror movies ever. I think it's like so equal, good, like number one of like the 20 or so number ones I have in my life. <laughs> and so any time to talk about House of Louds and Corpses is a good time for me. I but agree. It was also just wonderful getting to know you, talking to you a bit. Um, 
where can everybody find you? You've talked about Ghouls Magazine already, but where can they find you and hear everything that you have to say on the regular? Sure. Um, so you can find me on Twitter at Ari underscore Hellraiser. And all of my writing, I will post there. Um, and you can also follow me on Letterboxd at Ari underscore Hellraiser as well. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. <laughs> so be sure to check her out. And also, I will make sure to put a few links to your work from Ghouls into the show notes. So oh, if you haven't looked at the show notes yet, go check it out. And you can go see what Ari has to say about cinema and you know, horror films. And of course, thank you, dear listener, for joining us in talking about the squelch <laughs> that lurks within the horrible. Goodbye. There's no beauty here.